0: Hey everyone, and welcome to The Kodakery. I'm Megan.
1: And I'm Josh.
0: This week's show features cinematographer Paul Cameron, ASC. Paul has a lengthy list of accolades, including Director of Photography for Gone in 60 Seconds, Man on Fire, Total Recall, and Collateral. But what got Josh and I the most excited was that Paul shot the pilot episode for Westworld. You'll find out what that experience was like and get a deeper look into his career. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with Paul.
1: We are very excited to have with us today Paul Cameron, ASC. Paul is joining us to talk about a variety of things. He has an incredible body of work from, you know, Man on Fire to Collateral, Deja Vu, and then all the way up to his most recent work on The Commuter, starring Liam Neeson and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales and we want to talk about all this stuff, but we really want to talk about Westworld. (laughs) Megan and I are huge fans, like huge. Oh, great. So we're very excited to talk about Westworld. Sure. Um, Paul, thank you so much for
2: joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So how did you get involved in the pilot for Westworld?
2: Well, I got a call from uh, Jonathan Nolan, um, fortunately, kind of, early on in the, the kind of conceptual phase of Westworld, um, he was considering doing the project and was starting to develop, it uh, with JJ Abrams and HBO and, uh, and, at the time Warner brothers and, um, you know, he had just, they just hired, uh, Nathan Crowley, the production designer. So fortunately, you know, Jonathan brought me on kind of early in the concept stage, which was fantastic because, uh, it, it, uh, it was great not only to hear from him because I loved his work on Person of Interest, which was a great network show. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I knew all of his writing from his uh, brother's films, Chris Nolan's films that he had done. So it was, you yeah. know, it was a good call to get and a great opportunity.
0: Cool. How does it work when somebody like Jonathan Nolan calls you? I mean, do you have to audition? Do you have to show like a proof of concept or here's what I'm thinking of before they say, yeah, you're the guy?
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always great to get a telephone call directly from a director or filmmaker. Um, you can kind of cut to the chase very quickly, and and uh, I mean I I literally knew within uh, five minutes that I wanted to do the project, and and you know it's it's I knew I had heard about the project through my agent, and you know that they were looking for a DP. So when I got the telephone call out of the blue, it was kind of a good. It was a good uh, call to get, but yeah, you you know, it's game on. It's like uh, you know, it's like showing up for a day of shooting. You gotta you get the call out of the blue, and you better you better have you know game uh, on the call right, and, right. and be able to play. You know, mm-hmm. so these uh, you know these the stakes are high, so you take right. go for it.
1: So, how much do you think your work as the DP on the pilot sets the tone for future episodes?
2: Well, I think it's very important, you know, as a as a cinematographer, uh, you know, on the pilot to develop a look for the project that, that hopefully will there'll be a consistency, you know, throughout how many overseas and say they you know, the project or the series um you know, is on is on network or on cable. So, you know, it's um I think, you know, for me, the first thing is you start, you know, you start with the, the formal things, which are the, the most important creative choices, you know, uh, specifically what are you going gonna to shoot film, you're going to shoot digital, you know, what's the content about, what, what kind of color palette are you thinking of, style of photography, you know, then you you go from there and, and kind of develop the look, you know, and, and for, for Westworld, it was pretty succinct, it was... You know, we have this 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 kind of um, time, let's say timeless because we don't know the Westworld Park when it re, you know or the operations center when it's really happening. Is it happening in the present or is it in 2050 or whatever? Right? So, you know, there's a timeless aspect to it. But the you know what I keyed in on was you know what what Jonathan told me and that you know he said listen, the park is you know relatively relatively new. They keep it in great shape. It's, you know, people are spending a lot of money to go here, and then you know you go on in the initial scout and you see, you know, Santa Clarita Melody Ranch, and it's dark brown, and you know the last thing that shot there was deadwood, and it's you know decrepit. and You know, you think about, oh, geez, you know, okay, well that's not the look. And then you realize, you know, Nathan Crowley is an amazing production designer. You know, you speak speak with him and talk to him about what he's going to you know do with 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 you know, the town and the park and begin to get a feel for it, you know, and I, and, you know, I think the other big thing for developing look like for Westworld is we want, we wanted a big scale cinematic feel to it, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's the key, you know, thing, how to directors of photography maintain that it's very difficult because there's more money in the, in the pilot on one hand, but everybody has to understand that all the sets that you see, uh, at least, you know, probably 80% of the sets you see, on the you know the you know the other episodes are all all built during the pilot, so they they spent a lot of money on you know specifically this pilot they spent a lot of money on physical sets and
0: right.
2: and whatnot set the but, stage um, yeah
0: mm-hmm.
2: but anyway just to 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 kind of carry it through it's you know I can get into more specifics but the you know you want you want to make the look for the right creative choices and then. You know you wanna make it an uh you know an approachable look for other directors of photography to to kind of handle you know it's uh and you know believe it believe it or not, I think one of the most interesting choices thinking about it is you know for me is like geez, whoever they hire has this, you know the, some of the directors of photography is that may shoot this this series may have never shot film before, so that was a concern I had as well which is. For the first time in my career, thinking about that. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So, why was film a must-use for this series?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. The you know it goes back to the first conversation with Jonathan. It's. Um, you know, I remember, I remember saying probably within the first five minutes of the conversation, you know, I'd love to shoot this film. And his, his response was, well, that's great because we are shooting on film. (laughs) And then we just rolled into the next topic. You know what I mean? It was like, um, you know, it's certainly, as a director of photography, cinematographer, what you're going to originate on your project, you know, whether it's film or digital, for me, always like, now that's the primary creative choice. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the first thing I think about. And, you know, unfortunately, it's, you know, there's, there's um, you know, because of digital acquisition and digital capture, people are so used to it that they, they think shooting film is a luxury. And, you know, I, I really have a different perspective. It's, it's not a luxury. It's, it's one of the primary creative choices you make in a project, you know.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, how, how much is the cinematographer empowered to make the choice of film versus digital? or is it somebody else in the production? Like, how, how does that choice get made?
2: Well, I think we're seeing a trend now where, you know, cinematographers, you know, certainly with less experience or less credits are put in a position of, of kind of being told that they're shooting not only digitally, but what camera system they're going to use and, what you know, what, how the dailies are going to be handled. And, and you know, they're, they're kind of being told this and um, I you know I don't believe you know for a lot of for, for a lot of us we we still maintain all those choices when, when I speak with the producer after I speak with the director it's I lay out the I lay out things from a perspective of creative choice you know and 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 what they are and that you know every project has trade-offs Um I think you know just to back up a little I think one of the problems we're facing now is you know there's a lot of people early on in their careers were, you know, digital capture has been such kind of a mainstay, and that there's a belief out there that, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, more cost effective to shoot digitally and, uh, much cheaper, you know, overall. And, you know, for some reason it's going to go faster and for some reason it's easier. And I, you know, I honestly challenge that both financially and kind of physically, you know, certainly creatively.
0: So back to when we were discussing, you know, you've completed the pilot as the cinematographer and now someone else takes it off of your hands. How does that transition work? How much involvement do you have in the handoff?
2: Well, I think it goes um, certainly series by series but dealing with, you know, handling, you know, uh, handing off a a visual look for a pilot to uh, other directors of photography in this case. You know, I, I um, heard early on from uh, Brendan McAlvin and Robert McLaughlin, uh, the two DPs that were uh, went on to the, the regular series after, after the pilot. And, you know, I had extensive conversations with them just about um, certain lighting style and certain color temperatures and looks, you know, I mean, it's, it's. You know, the the good news about shooting film is you need to be more specific when you're passing things down, you know, mm-hmm. verbally and, and, you know, specifically with color temperatures and gel colors and you know things that you would still do if it was handed down digitally. But, um, you know, I think even more specifics are kind of needed in shooting film, which kind of helps directors of photography more. I think, you know, um, they're not getting a lookup table, you know, for a camera. They're getting, you know, notes for how to handle color temperatures at you know different times of day and different right. locations and different color palettes and stuff like that so yeah.
0: um, so it's like in, in this setting I use this film stock um, in the, the night time I use this one and you're passing that on and uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then
2: you, you know you're talking about you know you're balancing for you know you're going to use a, an LLD filter instead of an 85 filter, so you're going to do a half correction, and you're going to balance your lights, your fire lights, you know 2900, and your your night light at at 5100, and you know so you give them the basic notes, and then you know it's like. It's like anything. It's like hiring your people in a band. You know, right. inevitably the song is—they can't Change. keep playing the yeah. same song. You know, they—they've right, right. got to play a little variation of that song. And all great artists take that variation and turn them into you know great symphony. And so, yeah. um, well, it you sounds know, like you did the you hard know. work. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's great. you don't have it's to admit it, that. <laughs> I don't know. It's fun work for me. It's, yeah. Again, yeah. It's conceptualization, visualization, of the two levels of kind of on a project that are are kind of the most fun outside of physical production. But, you know, this show, I think there's upwards of, I think it was Jeffrey Gerr also, and uh, Mm -hmm. David Franco, and Burr McLaughlin, and uh, Brendan Galvin, and uh, Mike uh, Bogdavio did some uh, exterior. So I think all in all there was about six directors of photography for the whole series, Mm Yeah.
1: Where do you go for inspiration? You get this call from Jonathan Nolan and it's it's uh, you're going to do a western but it's science fiction. Where do you go for inspiration for this?
2: Well, you know, for, you know, for me it's the, the initial thing for for the inspiration was, is is uh, you know, was was you know, for the western world was, you know, big cinematic feel equals John Ford, you know, you want, you know, you want those big magnificent landscape images that that are really going to ground, you know, where Westworld exists, you know, for the operations center. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a series of things that happened that brought us to Moab, which uh, was where we shot all the, all the Western exteriors for, for Westworld. And, and, you know, again, that kind of came from, the John Ford world, and it also came from my world of shooting uh, Marlboro commercials with Tony Scott and hmm. uh, directing and shooting my own commercials down there in Moab as well. And it is a magnificent place, you know, with, with incredible landscapes. And you know, by the nature of being there, it it, it it kind of inspires you. So, you know, we, we reviewed some of the stuff when we went for our initial scouts with Jonathan and Nathan Crowley and, and Kim Wither, our, our um, AD you know, we, we knew what we wanted to do, roughly, you know, in terms of, you know, we wanted to track with horses with, you know, pursuit vehicles and do aerials. And uh, we had very specific things we wanted to do that you need the right place to shoot it. And, you know, fortunately, I'd shot a lot down there, so I knew some private properties in, in the Moab area. And then we also got, you know, permission to use Dead Horse Point over the Colorado River there, which is, you know, where I think you see it in the pilot where Ed, Ed Harris is slaying the, the gentleman from the saloon. So, right. you know, it's a process, you know, and then there, all of a sudden we're standing there and we realize, okay, well, this is where Westworld is. You know, it's actually built into the side of this mountain, you know, the operations center. So... Some of it came out of scouting, and then, of course, you think of, you know, in the science fiction, you think of, you know, for me, obviously, you think of films like 2001, and, you know, you think of Blade Runner, and you think of, you know, strong, strong graphic, you know, beautifully art-directed imagery that, that will evoke this kind of timeless operation center. And then, the you know, the basic inspiration for the operation center is very simple. It's like at the top floors is where people enter, you know, and they... They get processed, you know, to go out into the park, and then as you go down, you go to where they, they bring in the hosts and, you know, uh, do the behavioral uh, implementation on them. And as you go down and down, this is, you know, where they build the hosts, and then all of a sudden this is where they bring the hosts in, full of bullet holes and all bloody, and they wash them down every night, and then, then you go to deeper and deeper and deeper until you're finally at that basement-basement that level where you see... Uh, See Anthony Hopkins talking to Wild Bill um, right, in right. that, that kind yeah. of you know desolate place where we shot in, in Hawthorne. So a lot of it kind of came out of how do we make it a bigger cinematic feel to it? How do we make this park you know and, and listen? And I, I we see it in a lot of television right now. And, and you know, there's a lot of scale to a lot of shows, and it's important for this this show to have scale we didn't want to rely on visual effects at all, you know, so that was a big one for us.
1: Right. Uh, There were so many small details that I just loved, like when you just mentioned Anthony Hopkins talking to, to Wild Bill and, like, the way that that host moved, where it almost reminded me of, like, the way if I went to Disney World now, I would mm-hmm. encounter animatronics like that. Like it was a little bit jerkier mm-hmm. and yeah, more exactly. artificial. And then you see the new hosts and they're like just regular people walking and talking. Yeah. Those details I thought were so impressive and it pulled this entire illusion off of like this this thing that's evolved over time and all of that stuff. I mean how for you as a storyteller do you do you take part in in, in the littler aspects of it, the details of it?
2: Well, I think, you know, it's it's what was interesting about doing a pilot for a for a series like this is only so much of it had been written but at least a season or two of it were was conceived by Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. But there was very little information that we were given about what was happening for, you know, in the next episode or the following episode after that. Uh, we really focused on the pilot and what the pilot should should be like. So there were, you know, there were occasions like that where I would ask Jonathan, like, is that cool that he's twitching as much as he's twitching? Or, mm-hmm. And Jonathan would just look at me and give me a certain look, like, he wants to tell me why, but he can't tell me why. <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of thing of, right. you know, certainly it was privy to some information, other information I wasn't privy to, and you know, shooting film or anything as an exploration as you shoot it as well. So you may have all the ideas in the world, but when you get there with actors, you know, like an Anthony Hopkins or Annette Harris or Evan Rachel Wood, or you know, the list goes on in that show. You know, right. and then and then you see the nuances that they bring to it, and then the whole collaborative energy of actually shooting and and and, and making it happen. Um, that's the exciting. You know, that's just. The exciting part, for sure. You know, it was it was, a, it was a real pleasure to watch watch it kind of evolve and I you know, listen. To, you know, I'm one person, and you know, the, out of that cast, there were probably 20 people asking Jonathan every day, "What's happening? Why am I doing that? <laughs> you know, right, right. <laughs> what's happening? Next episode, you know, what's happening to happening me, happening to me." And uh, there was a lot of subtle stuff going on that, that um, you know, I think paid off through the whole series so far
0: yeah as far as storytelling is going and tools that you can use and intricacies mm-hmm. when you're when you're shooting an emotional scene as opposed mm-hmm. to maybe a shootout you know in the in the town there, what are some mm-hmm. of the tools available to you to try to get the audience to those more emotional places? Well
2: I think it's you know it's probably for me, it's a lot simpler. You know, the actual physical tools of shooting are are, are, are the same for just about any sequence, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're dolly or track or boom or whatever, but it's, it's, it's how you, you know, how you use the tools, and specifically for dramatic scenes, how you use the close-ups and
0: mm-hmm.
2: how do you handle an eyeline, how do you make an image uncomfortable, you know, or how do you make an image so still that it's even so uncomfortable, which is what we did on, you know... And another thing we did on on the show is how you you know we made these kind of uncomfortable mechanical camera moves on occasion you know to make it feel like somebody was watching you know from the operation center at all times you know subtle things like that and then certainly like you said when you you know you get to a shootout specifically the shootout in the pilot we kind of designed uh, you know pretty frenetic steady cam uh, blocking for that sequence, you know, that, that we felt was, you know, again, kind of mechanical, even though it was action oriented, there were very mechanical moves that Chris Harhoff, or a camera operator was doing um, that were all designed, you know, to, for cutting, you know, and, and to give this kind of mechanical feel to that shootout, you know, in, a, uh, in the town. So, you know, it's really, again, it's, it's you know the the great thing for for cinematographer GP is you know you can think of all of it yourself but when you're when you're with great directors like Jonathan Nolan and you're with great operators like Chris Harhoff and you know you you have preconceived ideas and your plan and you you have everything ready and then you're standing there and you're looking at you know uh,
0: Ed Harris
2: and what he's doing and you kind of everybody reacts to it and hopefully you have a good collaborative energy and it's like jeez you know what i know i wanted to do this and i've been planning to do this for three months but what about this that's <laughs> you know? really cool. and that's you know that's really the joy of, of good filmmaking is that you know you prepare you prepare you prepare the rug gets pulled up from underneath you and you got to see where you're standing at that moment you know yeah.
1: One of the things we talked about uh, very recently with Greg Frazier, who's a cinematographer, oh, yeah, fantastic. Um, was uh, lighting and how lighting is just so critical to what a cinematographer does. And how do you approach it differently for film versus digital? Um, and how much do you rely on natural light versus artificial light as you're kind of setting some of these shots we've talked about?
2: Well, I think, you know, the most important thing for for people to realize is light is light. You know, so whether you're shooting you know, motion picture film or digital capture, the quality of light you know is really the direction and quality of light and um, the color of the light, uh, the way it hits a face or a, a comes through a window or bounces off a wall or it doesn't change. you know light is light, it's truth, you know and you know I think, there's kind of a uh, people think like it's easier for some reason on, on on digital well it's the, the only difference is you're looking at a you know a monitor an hd right. monitor that actually you know in some cases you're seeing it with a lookup table and you're seeing you know kind of your end result there so that's a you know positive attribute of shooting digital but it doesn't change you know what you do as a director of photography you're still responsible for moving that light over six inches or, or you know, putting a scrim in it to take it down or turning it off, you know, or whatever the decision is. It's a... Uh, they're all important decisions and, you know, digital versus motion picture film, and there shouldn't be any difference whatsoever, you know, it's just what happens on a set is, you know, often shooting digitally is there could be one light on and it could be a work light on and people can walk in and the monitors are on and they, you know, they think it's lit and we're ready to go. And that's the, you know, that's kind of the difference is that there's kind of the appearance of what's really happening uh, digitally. But so when it comes to natural versus artificial light, I think I have a pretty uh, strong feeling about it. It's, you know, I think as a director of photography, I certainly, you know, when shooting locations specifically try to drive everything to the best natural light. And I think all the great directors of photography do that. Uh, and you know, up and coming, uh, hopefully up and coming TPs do it as well. You know, and it's, 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 it's an understanding of light and how you're going to use it, you know, how you time your day out, how you're going to match it. You know, that's, that's, that's very important. Um, there's a lot of us that have to deal with artificial light specifically for visual effects movies, you know, like a pirates, uh, you know, which I just finished uh, a little over a year ago that I'm color timing now. And, and that's, you know, that's a combination of dealing with, you know, natural light and replicating natural light in a green screen environment. Um, and you need to take, you know, a kind of scientific approach to it. You know, you need to understand light, you know, like you stand out on a street, and the light is coming down and hitting hitting your back uh, over your left shoulder. It's also hitting the ground. The light's bouncing back up, and it's hitting the wall 15 feet in front of you and bouncing back into you. You stand out in the middle of the, a black lava field, you know, in the same lighting conditions. The light on your face is different, you know. So mm-hmm. you have to understand your environments and your color temperatures and what's happening with the light to replicate it artificially and, you know, I think there's this this a lot of people like to talk about. Oh well, I just love natural light. and I just use natural light, and and I think ideally, often, you know myself included, we'd all love to say that all the time. You know, I think a lot of us would rather not use lights, um, uh, but we have to, and so it's very important how to understand artificial light and kind of be able to mold it into feeling as natural as possible.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, last week at CES, Mm -hmm. we announced the return of Ectochrome. And I know that you have shot on Ectochrome. In fact, in research for this, I saw that you shot Man on Fire, which I love that movie. And uh, at the time, especially, I remember being like, wow, this looks so different than uh, so many other things out there. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like to shoot on Ectochrome?
2: Yeah, well, thanks so much for the kind words about Man on Fire and Ectochrome. But it's it's you know, I you know, a quick anecdote on it is, um, you know, I'd shot a bunch of cross processed ectochrome in the initial tests for Man uh, Fire, and I uh, and actually some of it was actually on um, on Super 16, and I brought it back to Fox Studios uh, from Mexico City, and I showed it to uh, Joe Roth and the executives over there, and everybody freaked out. They were, they were, you know, Tony was, Tony Scott wasn't there at the screening and everybody I think was just kind of in shock. I think their, you know, their jaws were, they couldn't believe it. It was, you know, hand crank reversal film and multiple exposures and the super 16 was grainy. And, you know, it was, it, 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 It it put the look of fear into everybody's eyes, and, you know, I brought the information back to Tony, and he said, great, well, let's get a couple hundred thousand feet anyway, you know? (laughs) It was like, that was the first anecdote on the film. So then, you know, then became, you know, like a couple weeks later, the producers down in Mexico asked me for a film order, and I was kind of like, okay. And I laid out, you know, the Kodak negative stock that I was going to use, and then I slipped in a couple hundred thousand feet of uh, Ektachrome, 35 mil Ektachrome in there. Um, it went through, and suddenly some pallets of film got shipped in from uh, Rochester, and uh, I walked into the office and I saw a pallet of uh, Ektachrome wrapped in plastica. Uh, I was quite happy. So, you know, it was a radical. We, you know, Tony and I had done this film uh, called Beat the Devil for uh, BMW, it was a series of films that were made by higher end filmmakers for kind of like 10 minute films for the BMW web page, you know, probably around 2002 or something like that. So it was very early on. And they were very prestigious projects to work on. And geez, I think I shot, I'm going to say I shot like 90% of that one on, on reversal film as well. So. And by the time we got to man of fire we had tested it we had a language with it, how we were going to use it and it actually developed into much more i don't remember the exact number of feet we shot but i think it was closer to 400,000 feet of reversal of man of fire on active
1: that's awesome. awesome and it's really memorable it really is like it was such a, yeah. well, such a great yeah. movie and, uh, well
2: it's great to hear it's coming back and mm-hmm. you know it's it's I mean, to me, it's a very positive sign that Kodak is releasing this kind of very niche stock, you know, and that hopefully students and young filmmakers will get their hands on it and start using it because it's 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 really when it comes to kind of the analog filmmaking that a lot of us love that it couldn't be more analog than that. I mean, right. it's 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 a great attribute, to, to, and it's a great you know, again, it's for me, it's a great tool to have. A, it was much of an emulated. These reversal looks, ectochrome looks on on uh, digital, it's they just don't look the same, and you know you certainly can't get a cross process reversal look on uh, a lookup table digitally. It just doesn't work. It's it's a certain photochemical reaction that only you know film can do, and and there's just something about reversal film and you know specifically ectochrome that. It has a characteristic that's irreplaceable, and you know, again, it you can you can kind of emulate it, but you never really you never can emulate the kind of real photographic uh, kind of synergy that's happening by exposing uh, a stock like Ektachrome.
1: Yeah, I just want to end on one final question. If, but if, uh, listening to you talk through your diverse experiences shooting digital shooting film um tv commercials how important mm-hmm. is it for the next generation of cinematographers to, to kind of cultivate diversity in their skill set
2: you know i think the you know the challenge for young filmmakers is you know the opportunity to take a a, a product, you know whether it's a film or whatever you know photochemically through a laboratory and get a I mean, obviously, we're not printing anymore. But even you know, a great scan after a DI of, of something that was shot on film is amazing. So you know, I think you know, when it comes to overall diversity, again, it comes down to creative choices. And I think uh, you know, for younger DPs and filmmakers, they really, we really need to break the illusion that it's much more expensive to shoot on film. I think it's. It's you know been proven on some projects that that's not the case, and certainly you know Kodak and, and laboratories around the world are trying to make it uh, more approachable for for students and young filmmakers and professional filmmakers to shoot not only 35 but you know 65, 70 millimeters. So you know we've gone through kind of a 10-year period where you know we seem to be trying to phase out film, and hopefully we're we're ten, you know in a in a 10-year period of bringing it back and bringing it back strong because it's a great medium and it's an irreplaceable medium and uh, as good as, you know, digital capture is and larger format, it doesn't, you know, when you're in the 35mm format in the 4K world, I don't think there's anything that, that is more elegant or better in that medium. Yeah, so. a- Amen. Amen.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Paul. Really, we're looking forward to seeing uh, everything else you do in the future. All right. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.
2: It is a great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention.